Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to be together in your presence today. Our joy is complete in your presence. We don't need anything else. We find mercy in your presence, mercy we all need every day. We are strengthened by your presence. We need your strength to resist the evil one who wants to keep us off your good path and take us onto the path to destruction. And we find peace in your presence, peace that comes from being in good standing with you through the redeeming power of your son's life, death, and resurrection. Lord, we confess our need for redemption. Whether our allegiance to you is young or mature, we see how near we are to destructive ways. We know our propensity to follow them. We know that without your grace, we would go down those paths blindly and gladly. So we call on you for your mercy, for we are sinners. We have all found ways to worship created things rather than the creator. Forgive us, Lord, and help us to repent so that our worship of you can be pure and our faithfulness whole. Lord, we know you created us male and female, both in your image, each carrying your attributes in order to bring order to the world and glory to you. But today we take time to practice thankfulness for the way your characteristics are uniquely manifested in the feminine, especially mothers. Lord, you describe yourself as compassionate and gracious. In Isaiah, you reveal that you comfort your people like a mother comforts her child. Through your creative design, human life continues through birth, and spiritual life is given to the nations through the incarnating birth of your son, who you entrusted to the care of a young mother. And God, we pray for those who experience painful emotions around this topic or this day for various reasons. Bring them compassionate comfort from you, the true source of comfort. And we thank you, God, for the encouragement we received from Bush Thomas last week. We praise you for the good work you are doing in the life of the church that he and Chandra brought to us. We ask that you would raise up leaders in that church that love you, show godly character, and study your word so that your people can be encouraged to follow you with their whole lives. We pray for them and for ourselves and the broader church in India and in Salem, that our love for you would not be mingled with a love for anything else. We pray that we would daily shed any affections for anything that would keep us from wholehearted commitment to you. Father, we have many who are part of our gathering who are suffering with illness, are close to someone who is ill or caring for someone who is ill. Again, we ask for comfort in the midst of the suffering. We ask for healing. We ask for a tangible sense of your presence through the care of your people. Father, we, we long for the day that we experience your presence fully. We long for the day that you have already appointed, that you will wrap this world up, put away sin, sickness, sorrow, and death. As we hear from your word, help our ears to be open and our hearts soft so that we can be sustained until that day by the life-giving words of scripture. Help our brother Hans to clearly proclaim your words and help us to receive them gladly. In your son's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. Well, happy Mother's Day. One of the best ways that we can honor mothers and care for those that you love is to point to Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do. Would you open up to Revelation 14 with me? Revelation 14. In February of either 1817 or 1818, a man by the name of Frederick Douglass was born into a life of enslavement. At six years old, his mother and father died, and he was left in the hands of his grandparents. And the poverty and malnutrition and oppression that he suffered in his early years was inhumane and unthinkable, to say the least. And yet, he would rise above his own circumstances to become one of the most prominent voices in the abolitionist movement in the United States, and would go on to be one of the greatest writers and thinkers, politicians, and orators of American history. 
like the other almost 4 million human beings born into slavery in the United States at that time, Douglas knew that it was uh, knew what it was to be in bondage under the physical hand of a harsh and cruel master, where escape and redemption seemed impossible. And yet, at the age of 20, he fled to the north in a cleverly devised plan to pass as a freed sailor with documents, money, and a uniform that had been provided by his future wife. Recalling his exodus to freedom, he noted that he experienced more fullness of life in that singular day than all the rest prior. He said it was a time of joyous excitement which words can but tamely describe. But even then, the fullness of redemption was hardly realized as he remained a fugitive slave under the law until eight years later. You see, escape from an oppressor is one thing, but peace rarely comes until that same oppressive force is brought to a complete end. And at the age of 59... Douglas wrote something that illustrates the peace that comes when an oppressor, in his case a slave master, is brought before the great judge and equalizer of mortality. At the deathbed of his former master, Douglas expressed a level of peace that occurred because of his ex-master's impending death and what awaited him in eternity. He later wrote this about the experience. By this current that had been determined for us, he was a master and I a slave. But now our lives were verging towards a point where differences disappear, where even the constancy of hate breaks down, and where the clouds of pride, passion, and selfishness vanish before the brightness of infinite light. At such a time and in such a place when a man is about closing his eyes on this world and ready to step into the eternal unknown, no word of reproach or bitterness should reach him or fall from his lips, and on this occasion there was to this rule no transgression on either side." Douglas, you see, had been physically, practically free for decades, having made his exodus to freedom many years prior. But his words speak something intrinsically powerful about the counterbalance of eternity and mortality that gave Douglas a sense of peace once his exodus was complete. With death came an equalizer that allowed him to hand over judgment of this individual who had done him such harm in his early years. You see, Douglas faced a particular level of earthly oppression that none of us will ever know. But all of mankind can glimpse a portion of the truths brought forth in this portion of his story. For all mankind has been oppressed under the curse of sin and death. Its phantom, no matter how far we remove ourselves from it, chases us, and thus true peace escapes us. But the word of God is clear that one day peace will Come, wickedness will be done away with, and the Prince of Peace will reign. It is this idea of both an exodus from the enslavement to sin that has plagued mankind and the perfect judgment of God that brings an end to all that has oppressed mankind that we will see this morning. John began these seven visions that we have before us in Revelation with Exodus imagery in chapter 12, but here we will see its conclusion as we look at the glorious triumph of God in the ultimate exodus of his redeemed. The glorious triumph of God in the ultimate exodus of his redeemed. Let's go ahead and read our text in full in Revelation 14, beginning in verse 14, and we will finish up in verses Uh, Verse uh, 15, chapter 4. That should say 15 on the screen, not 5. 15, verse 4. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle, and another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. 
So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the word of the Lord. The corkscrew pattern and recapitulated view that we've been seeing through Revelation is becoming more clear as we progress through the book. We can see it as we look back at the cycles of the throne room scene and the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven visions to see a depth and volume of imagery that fully describes the events of the church age and the judgment and resurrection to come. Now this morning in Revelation 14, verse 14 through 15:4, we have before us another angle on the image we first saw in the sixth seal as the judgment of God was pictured through the sun becoming black as sackcloth, the full moon like blood, and the stars of the sky falling. That was the first angle upon this event that we saw. And this was again recapitulated in the great judgment that accompanied the sixth trumpet that you can go back and look at. In both cases, these texts were followed by these brief interludes describing the people of God. And in uh, chapter 7, we saw the 144,000. And then again in chapter 10, we saw the imagery of the people of God as the temple and the two witnesses. In all these cases, these texts were, were followed and looked at with this idea of what the people of God had become. And so here we see this morning again in chapter 15 this same parenthetical look at God's people directly following uh, this great judgment. In these different angles upon the same event, we first see God's conclusive judgment of the nations. God's conclusive judgment of the nations. And this is the largest section of our text this morning, verses 14 through 20 are covering this idea. Now, there are a number of scholars who take a look at this first stanza and see not judgment but redemption. And I think that we can humbly entertain that possibility, for sure. It is not out of the realm of possibility that John is first giving some good news of reaping the righteous into the storehouses of God and then the judgment in the second stanza. That is well within the realm of possibility. We even have some biblical backing in this idea because of the many references that Christ made to the truly saved as one who would produce fruit, like grain, that could be harvested. But I want to propose to you that if we look a bit deeper at the imagery this morning, it's not a harvesting of the righteous, but of the wicked for the express purpose of conclusive judgment. You see, for a people who are under persecution and the threat of martyrdom, This idea of removing the wicked oppressor was one that would bring them great joy, even more so, I might suggest, than the thought that they would receive the exodus into the eternal life. And so we begin with familiar imagery there in verse 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, we have already seen much of this familiar imagery in Revelation. This imagery comes out of another book in the Bible, the book of? A few of you got it. Daniel, very good. You're getting it. 
Okay, this idea of the Son of Man comes out of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Would you turn with me there? And we will do a bit of an overview in that chapter. We've covered it many times before, but let's go back there again. Daniel chapter 7. Now, the first eight verses of Daniel 7 are describing the beastly nation states. You can see it there in your Bible as we do this overview. Uh, you'll see Daniel's vision of the four beasts. These are describing the nation states that are given dominion over the world as the agents of the greatest beast himself, the dragon, the serpent, Hasatan, the rebel and adversary of God. Now, in response to these beasts' arrogant boasts against God calling authority uh, for themselves, the Ancient of Days shows up. Verse 9, he shows up on the scene to establish his ancient, sovereign, and immovable authority. Fire comes forth from his presence, a sign of judgment. And notice what it says there, verses 9 and 10. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed. The Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And notice it says, the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened." This courtroom scene leads to the judgment of the beastly, wicked oppressor of all mankind. And the mantle of authority is placed on the shoulders of the Prince of Peace, the one whom the prophet Isaiah said that the government will be upon his shoulders. And with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man then comes and is presented to the ultimate sovereign, and he is given dominion over all peoples, nations, and languages. And this dominion will never pass away. You see that in verses 13 through 14. It says this is a kingdom, the end of verse 14, one that shall not be destroyed. And then notice the bit of commentary that comes after it. Take a look at verses 21 through 22. It says, as I looked, this horn, the, the small beast, made war with the saints and prevailed over them. It seems that he's having victory. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And look at verse 26 as well. The court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. This scene, dear friends, is the enthronement of the Son of God for salvation. Absolutely, yes, and we praise God for that, amen? But it requires, and the focus is, could even be said more so, on the judgment of the wicked for it to reach its full consummation. You see, for salvation to truly occur, for the exodus to be complete, the oppressor has to be destroyed in a watery grave. Even Jesus noted this combination in Matthew 24, verses 30 through 31. Notice the two together. It says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why will they mourn? Because judgment has come. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Friends, that is not a Pentecostal power and great glory. That is the power and great glory of judgment that is coming. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. But do you see the order, the judgment first, and then the fullness of the gathering into the Lord's abode? So yes, redemption is implicitly implied when judgment is envisioned, even in our text in Revelation 14. But the focus of our text is the judgment that causes the nations of the world to mourn. And so, beloved, when we hear again from Revelation 14, 14, go ahead and go back there to Revelation 14, 14, when it says, and we hear again, I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. When we hear this again, we bring the context of that judgment from Daniel 7 forward into the passage. And so we understand that judgment is what's occurring here. But our biblical reasoning for interpretation of this passage as, as judgment does not end there. For in verses 15 and 16, we get additional imagery, this idea of the sickle and the reaping that occurs. 
To help us further understand this vision, we can look just simply to the structure of the surrounding passages in Revelation. Chapter 13, for example, mimics Daniel 7 in that it begins with the discussion of the beastly nation states. That's what we covered in all of chapter 13. And the counterfeit spirit that is employed in joining with that beast to worship Satan himself. And then in contrast to that, John then moves on in the first portion of chapter 14 to to discuss the community of the redeemed. The 144,000 who stand in stark opposition to the beast as they have no lie in their mouth and they will not commit spiritual adultery with the idolatry of the beast. Notice that in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 14, these saints are ready and waiting to play their harps and sing worship to God. But for what? For the judgment that is about to be played out. And then in verses 14, uh, uh, verse 6 through 11, chapter 14, verse 6 through 11, there's this angelic proclamation that Nick took us through, an announcement of the judgment that is about to begin. The angels are literally flying overhead, telling about this judgment that is to come. And the announcement of this judgment is meant as a word of encouragement and endurance for the saints. That happens in verse 12. God's justice is coming, so friends, endure is the message. And so then... Where is this judgment? Well, I would submit to you that what has been proclaimed and announced and waited for in the previous chapter is now coming to pass. This is all leading up to verse 14 where John sees Jesus coming in the clouds to hold court and pronounce judgment upon the beast that has been oppressing and persecuting God's people throughout the church age. You see, dear friends, Jesus is not just about rescuing you out of the chaos, but about putting an end to the chaos once and for all. What an amazing thought. Not just that we will escape the fire, but that the fire will be put out. Not just that we will get rescued into the life raft, but that the seas will be calmed and we will stand on solid ground. What an amazing truth that is. Perhaps the most helpful text outside of Revelation that can cast light on this passage is that of our earlier reading uh, that Deborah read to us from Matthew 13. Let's look at it again. It says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servant of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. This has great implications for remember in Revelation 2 and 3, one of the biggest things that was concerning the church and causing division and destruction was that the synagogue of Satan was among the church. The false Christians were among the church. And so this is good news. The idea that judgment will happen before the fullness of salvation to parse the wheat from the tares so that the wheat can be pulled into the barn. Before there is any harvest of those who remain after the wrath of God has been poured out, there must first be justice brought in wrath upon the wicked. This is very particular language of reaping for the purpose of then being able to pronounce judgment. Furthermore, one of the reasons that many look to verses 14 through 16 as separate from verses 17 through 20 is that it seems the first section is referring to wheat and the second to grapes. Both use a sickle, but they seem different. But notice the use of imagery of harvesting for fruitful wheat has already occurred. Take a look at Revelation 14.4 there in your Bibles. It says, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. That language of firstfruits is that God is already doing his work, pulling his people to himself. But this judgment is the focus. Those who are Christ's are waiting, just as we are waiting for the announced judgment to occur. As we see the world around us being destroyed and devouring itself, as we see people call murder progress, 
as we see people call for the perversion of God's creation and then celebrating it. Friends, if you're paying attention, you're like these saints waiting for the judgment to come. Not because of hatefulness, but because you realize that the longer this oppression of sin and perversion that is contained even within ourselves is given room to run rampant, you realize the destruction that it causes. And so we likewise are waiting for the announced judgment to occur. What they are waiting for is the fullness of the evil of mankind to be complete. You'll notice throughout our section we've already read, it talks about the harvest being fully ripe. It has come to its point where if it lingers on the vine any longer, it will be ruined. And so this idea of fullness has occurred. Do you realize that this is actually what God is waiting for? When we get this understanding, we stop being shocked about sin that's occurring and that sin is seemingly advancing and that it seems to be growing. For the Bible says he is holding off with such patience so that more might be saved. Praise God. But he has a limit of the evil he will allow. And this is the idea of the cup of God's wrath being filled up in order that it might be tipped out in judgment. And for this to happen, the limit of sin that God has determined needs to be reached. Paul uses similar language and imagery in his first letter to the Thessalonians when he says that those who are sinning are filling up the measure of their sins. And this is similar to the idea that God expressed to Abraham in the Old Testament in Genesis 15, 16, when he says, Uh, Speaking of the the plan for the Israelites, they'll go back to Egypt and they'll be in Egypt for a while. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet completed. In other words, at that point, when it is completed, God will use Israel to come in and go into the land and be his judgment. When we see unmitigated sin and horror in the world around us and the sinful tendencies within us, And we cry out, how long, O Lord, remember that God does not glory in the death of the wicked. And so he is giving time to repent and turn to him, but he will not let it go a moment longer than it has to. Friends, you can trust in God's redemptive plan. So then why the two sections and why the two supposedly different harvests, one of wheat and one of grapes, Well, most likely in in biblical scripture, when you see a repetition right away, they're trying to emphasize something. And they're trying to hear, potentially emphasize the horrible nature of what is going to occur at God's conclusive judgment of the nations. And to add vivid color to this imagery, John employs context from two Old Testament passages. I want to see, I want you to see that he has brought those in here, and they very much describe and give us understanding of what's occurring. The first is in Joel 3, 1 through 16. Would you turn there in your Bibles with me? Joel 3, 1 through 16. If you turn to Daniel and go to the right past Hosea, you'll get to Joel. Joel 3, 1 through 16. Right away, what we can see in Joel 3, even by the header that's most likely in your Bibles, is that what is portrayed here is that the nations, backed by the beastly counterfeit spirit of Satan himself, have oppressed, harmed, and persecuted God's people, and so there's going to be judgment. Take a look at verses 1 and 2. It says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people, and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. And he goes on to describe their heinous sin. So what does he do? He calls all of the nations, he brings them uh, together, and he calls for their best warfare and best warriors to come against him. He's basically saying, in godly terms, bring it. (laughs) He's calling them to fight against him in one last-ditch effort to usurp his authority. He's saying, you have built up all this rebellion. Go ahead, try it, see what happens. This is a picture of the culmination of human rebellion. Take a look at verse 9. 
Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. And notice this is different than what we usually hear in this, in this kind of phrase from Isaiah. He says, beat your plowshares into swords. We've heard it the other way around often. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. But then the voice changes after the statement that God will sit in judgment. It switches to an imperative command and commands the use of the sickle to reap for something. Let's take a look in verse 13. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. This sounds familiar, yes? Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. It completes the imagery by using judgment and notes that it is actually in this judgment the Lord is then a refuge for his people. It says, multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And then the judgment imagery, the sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdrawing their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. Friends, this is not a friendly idea. But notice, the Lord is a refuge for his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. It's in judgment of wickedness that God becomes a refuge for his people. Such beautiful imagery. John takes this and pulls it into Revelation 14 and shows us this same imagery so that the readers in the first century and we, the, the readers further on down the line, we hear this and we hear that God is a refuge. Why? Because he will judge wickedness. He will not leave it undone. Second, he uses imagery from Isaiah 63. Go a little bit to the left in your Bible and go past Ezekiel and Lamentations and Jeremiah and go to Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63. He uses all of 1 through 14. We're going to go through it very quickly here. And we'll look at, at this again when we get to chapter 19. But it says, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people, peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. The day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. This is God speaking, friends. My own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. The prophet Isaiah understood the same truth that we're going through as well, that there could never be a day of salvation without a day of judgment first. And so this is what he lays out in his prophecy. The sin of rebellion among the nations, the enemies of Israel, including Edom, requires wrathful judgment. And God alone is the one who can bring it with justice. First judgment, and then a recounting of God's salvation for his people. Then look at verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord and praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us. It is in this judgment that we can then reflect and realize, oh, wow, the Lord is so loving because we deserve this as well. He says, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them in his love. And in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days 
of old. You see, the Exodus story is the prototype of all future understanding of salvation and redemption. And as he goes on here, he continues the Exodus story and the story of Israel. He says, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert? They did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Friends, the Exodus story is the prototype of all future understanding. You can see it referenced there in the midst of this discussion of judgment and compassion. And so Isaiah uses it to show the necessary unity that true salvation and true redemption can only come when coupled with judgment. And all of this was for the express purpose of making for God a glorious name among the nations. But you'll notice here in this recounting of the Old Testament and of uh, what was going on in the life of Israel, this imagery of full exodus and full judgment is incomplete. As Isaiah notes, the very people that God saved in the original exodus, the people of Israel rebelled against him just as the nations did. The only thing that kept God from completing his judgment against them was that he remembered his promises. The promise of faithfulness encapsulated in the imagery of the exodus. And so... What would need to happen and what all of Israel cried out for and what we cry out for is a more complete exodus that needed to occur. A new and better exodus. An exodus not only from the external oppressions of the nations, but one from the very sin and hardened hearts that have plagued mankind and even God's people in rebellion against him since the fall. A new and better exodus was needed. Now, with this background, we have a clearer picture of the wrath that is occurring in Revelation 14. For you see, in Revelation 14, it is describing the new and better exodus. An exodus where the oppressor is finally brought down. Go ahead and turn back there if you haven't already to Revelation 14. John is proclaiming to the persecuted church of the first century and to the church of today that God's redemption will be made complete in just excuse me, just judgment. For the Son of Man who is enthroned at the cross has established his court. He has made his case with the very marks that he bears on his resurrected body. And those who still stand in blatant opposition to Christ will be found guilty and will reap such violence against themselves that the imagery required to describe it is roughly a trail of blood that is the entirety of the length of the country of Israel, 182 miles or 1,600 stadia long, and as deep as from the ground to a horse's bridle. Look at what it says there in verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. That's that imagery from Daniel that comes from the throne, the imagery of judgment. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. That's the fullness of the sin. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Winepresses in the olden days were pits that were dug, and they had a hole in the center, and you'd get tons of labor to come and stand on the grapes and squeeze and squash all of the juice out, and it would run down into a vat that would be stored there, but what would be left behind is the ground-down flesh of the grapes. This is the imagery that John is employing, pulling in Joel and Isaiah. Christ has established his court, and he has found mankind guilty. Friends, as we've gone through Revelation, the question continues to arise, how do you and how do I, how do we view sin? 
Do we have certain categories that those other people do that, yeah, that sin is pretty bad, but we segregate and minimize our own? Do we see sin as the word of God sees it? Do we recognize the treachery and violence, the barbarity and inhumanity that we employ when we sin in any fashion against God's law? Do we recognize and agree that the only solution for it is the requirement of the crucifixion of our Lord in our place and for the entirety of creation? Sin, dear friends, is violence against our Maker. It's violence against our Maker. And the justice it requires is God's just wrath in return. Do we perceive sin as the Bible declares it, or have we justified our own sin or the world's sin so that we might be more comfortable with it? Beloved, what has God declared as sin that you have justified or minimized from which we need to repent today? You see, we must understand the depth of sin before we can grasp the glory and grace of the gospel. For the Savior that is boldly proclaimed on every page that we have already looked at this morning, he willingly took the violence of just wrath upon himself in your place and mine. And he did so so that we could gain his redemption, so that we could take part in his exodus. We must cry out for the Lord to give us eyes to see sin and its outcome in truth. For only then can we fully recognize the redemption that the Lord has accomplished on our behalf. And then we will understand the fullness of the new and better exodus that Christ has executed for us. And praise God, that is what John shows us next as he shows us the scene of the new and better exodus. The scene of the new and better exodus. And for the added bonus, now when people ask you how your Mother's Day sermon was, you can say it was great. We talked about bloodletting and wrath. (laughs) You definitely probably didn't get this in many other churches. The scene of the new and better exodus. Now on to the part in which we can rejoice. Because once we're made sad by sin, rightly so, we can understand the glory of the exodus that God has given us. From chapter 12 onward, in these seven visions, we have seen John use Exodus imagery and the fleeing of the woman into the wilderness to escape the dragon is a perfect example. The escape language using imagery of a great eagle. Destruction coming upon the enemy of God with a great watery flood, symbolizing destruction by way of their own chaotic rebellion. And then we have seen how there is context from other Old Testament passages that point our eyes to the original Exodus. And as we'll see in the next few weeks, the seven final bowl judgments are modeled after the Exodus plagues that God used to bring about the final judgment and rescue for the people of God in this prototype of redemption. Similar to the structure of Revelation chapter 8, when there was the transition from the seals to the trumpets, there is the initial mention of the new set of seven. Let's take a look in chapter 15, verse 1 as we see the initial mention of the seven bulls. It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. But before getting into that detail that we will see starting in verse 5, there is a parenthetical break, as we talked about in the other passages, where judgment comes from the altar that is before the throne. Here, though, almost as a preview of these Bull plagues, we see in this scene in the throne room of heaven, the imagery of Daniel 7 and the Exodus brought together to paint a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty. It's a picture of God's victorious people after the destruction of their enemies. Verses 14 through 20 is that recycled or recapitulated view of the final judgment of the enemies of God and his people. And now we are able to step into the joy of redemption that that has been accomplished The followers of the Lamb that were spelled out in Revelation 14, 1 through 5 are now standing in celebration and victory on that far eternal shore. We see in Revelation 14, 2 that the sound of their voices in singing a new song is like that of harps. And then in Revelation 15, 2, we see those same individuals with harps in their hands to worship in song. Look at that. It says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass 
a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And so we have these interlocking visions that are speaking of the same eventual outcome. The seven visions are speaking of the wrath of God that will be played out in further detail in seven plagues that are filling the seven bowls that will be poured out in God's wrath. And these details are, as John notes, the last things, the finality of God's judgment. It is appointed once for man to die, and then comes the judgment. Beloved, are you ready for the judgment? If Christ chose to take you today, are you ready to stand before his throne in judgment? Friend, if you are here this morning and this is news to you, or maybe it's news you once knew but have minimized and pushed out of your mind, recognize that the Bible proclaims this judgment will happen. I beg of you not to trust in your own righteousness, for it is nothing in comparison to the weight of rebellion you have thrown at your Creator. Christ came to give you mercy and grace and to save you into God's people and to turn your heart back to God. Don't waste the conviction that God is bringing you this morning. Turn to him as Savior and Lord if you've not already. If you want to talk through what that looks like, any of the pastors that will be up here later, we would love to chat with you after the gathering about what it is to walk with Jesus. Because this notion of judgment requires a response, and hopefully that response is one of repentance. But then, how do God's redeemed then interact with this heavy notion of judgment? I mean, it's heavy, right? <laughs> if I'm already his, how should I view it? Well, this is where John continues with the imagery that harkens back to the Exodus. Two specific items tell us this. First, John sees what appears to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. This is the same sea of glass that was mentioned in Revelation 4, 6 as before the throne, the throne of God. Remember that the sea in the mind of the Hebrews, as we saw with the beast that came out of the sea, is the place of chaos and the home of the satanic chaos monster. And so just as Jesus was walking calmly across a chaotic sea in the synoptic gospels, this same imagery is meant to declare that same message that God, Yahweh, through the redemptive work of Jesus, has calmed the chaos of the chaos monster. He's calmed the raging sea. He has taken the chaos and so perfectly exercised victorious authority over it through the death and resurrection of Jesus that he has made the sea like glass. Now, if any of you are wakeboarders, you know what I'm talking about. That moment where you wake up in the morning and you crawl out of your tent, or if you are a little bit more wealthy than me, your beautiful, nice RV, right? And you go out onto the lake to see if it's ready and the sun is peeking through the clouds and all you see is glass. And if you're a wakeboarder, you want to cause as much chaos in that as possible. <laughs> but if you're Jesus, you are so happy at what's occurred. God has calmed the chaos. And John gets this imagery directly from the scene of the Exodus in Exodus 14. I know I've had you turn a lot of places, but would you go back with me to Exodus 14? Take a look at verse 21. It says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waves were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning... Morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared." And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all of the host, the army, if you will, of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel 
walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The mingling of fire is a reference to the same fire as in Daniel 7 that comes from the heavenly throne of judgment. And and the result was the complete victory over chaos. In Revelation, we see the ensuing peace that comes from Christ's reign. And interestingly, the imagery is taken from Exodus 14. And in the Hebrew commentaries, the Midrash on the Old Testament, it speaks of this scene directly after the destruction of Pharaoh's army as one of a calm, glassy sea. What does this judgment bring in the midst of God's redeemed and rescued people? It brings singing and rejoicing here in Exodus 15 as well as in Revelation 15. Can you imagine this, dear brothers and sisters? The day on which we will stand in resurrected victory, in worship of Christ, and we will look upon the sin that imprisoned us, and the enemy that led us astray and deceived us, the serpent that deceived us, And we will see all his followers who hated our God, and we will know once and for all that they are defeated. What a day of rejoicing that will be. And this is not a day of pride in which we can say, look at our righteousness, but a day in which we will break down because we will once and for all understand the mercy of God and the grace of God, for we should have been there also. Isaiah captures this so well in Isaiah 59 or 51, 9 through 11. It says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? You who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea away for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Do you look forward to that day, dear friends? That day where sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Oh, Lord, come quickly. Notice the connection between the dragon that backs the enemy nations, such as Egypt, in the mind of the psalmist, or in the mind of Isaiah, excuse me. And John in Revelation is doing the same thing in the final judgment of all the wicked. God is, in fact, judging the adversary of God that leads them and backs them. And so it's only natural that the response is songs of praise by the redeemed in honor of God's righteous work of salvation. It's no different than when your team makes a a touchdown and you can do nothing more than to scream and yell and raise your hands, right? It's that automatic, but with far greater glory, praise God. John solidifies this Exodus imagery by using the second clue here that the song that the redeemed sing is the song of Moses. Now, technically, there are two songs of Moses, one in Deuteronomy and one directly after the judgment that we see here in Exodus 15. But the context of the passage in Revelation points us towards this Exodus song. But before we go there, let's pause and think about what all of this meant for the first century church reading this vision of John. And what does it mean for us? In the first century, the Christians had no political clout, no earthly power, no lobbying power as a religious majority. In fact, they were most likely at the bottom of the societal chain, regularly looking at persecution and possible martyrdom. And like the participants of the first exodus, they probably felt at times enslaved, at times stuck between a rock and a hard place, just as Israel was seemingly trapped here in Exodus 14, between the rock faces of Pihahirot, Migdol, and the Red Sea. And yet God's message to them through John is that they, like Israel, should look not on their earthly circumstances that seem impossible, but to God, who is their Savior and King. Friends, what is it in your life that you are encountering right now that seems like you are trapped between rock faces and an ocean and you have no way out? Is it the sickness of a dear loved one? and a prognosis that seems like there is no earthly hope. Friend, remember that God who opened the Red Sea has also opened the way to eternal life so that even death cannot hold those who are in his hands. Perhaps it's bondage to a sin that you cannot seem to shake no matter how hard you try in your own power. 
Friends, it was only when Moses gave up his own power and instead allowed the Lord to calm the chaos that the people were able to break through and achieve victory over their oppressors. Perhaps it's difficulty in your marriage or a hard relationship where you just can't seem to find a way to peace. Friends, only God can destroy the forces of Satan that are fighting against you and wish to overcome you. God can and will overcome, but he will do so in a way that makes no sense to us. Can you imagine? Hey, guys, I got a plan. We're going to walk through the Red Sea. Can you imagine the murmuring that was going on right then? Uh, I don't think so, Mo. No thanks, buddy. God will do so in a way that makes no sense to us, and he will often only be able to walk us through it when we realize we have no other options. Friends, the most beautiful act of grace is when you fall on your knees and you cry out, God, I have no other choice but you. That's the moment in which we start to see God in truth. We can't control it on our own, and so when we confess to him and act in a way that shows that we need to lean completely on him and his power and wisdom, that is when the breakthrough comes. And even then, dear friends, God does not promise that the other side of the situation will be perfect. We know this from the story of Israel, the story that's laid out between Exodus and Revelation. And this is why our hope is not on earthly circumstances or successes, but in the new and better Exodus that God has led us in as the new and better Moses in Jesus Christ. And these worshipers back in Revelation 15, these followers of the Lamb, these heavenly warriors, these purified saints, these figures who represent what we will one day be, They know this otherworldly power of God because they stand in resurrected victory as conquerors. Can I get an amen? Amen. And they can only do so because of the miraculous power of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they begin to sing the victory song of the redeemed. My notes are frozen. Can you try and go there, Paul? The victory song of the redeemed. At the beginning of the gathering this morning, we listened as Rachel read Exodus 15, the song of Moses to us. And it's there before you in Exodus. You can read it again on your own. But what you'll notice is the themes of conquering and victory. Yahweh alone is the salvation of his people. Yahweh is a God, not of weak passivity or earthly greed-driven war, but of just war, exercised on behalf of his people whom he has redeemed. And it is in his right hand, the position of power that shatters the enemy. Because of this, there is no God that compares. Yahweh alone is the true and living God. And because of his steadfast love for his covenant people, he will bring them into his presence and he will protect them from those who desire to harm them. And they will forever be planted in the temple of their God. This sounds a lot like what we've been reading in Revelation. But the promise of this song that Moses leads, including the promises that Yahweh will reign forever. If you look at the end of Exodus 15 there, it says the Lord will reign forever and ever. Exodus 15, verse 18. And the Israelites might have asked, okay, great, Moses, this is awesome that you're singing this, but how will you accomplish this? And this is the question that was on the minds of the first century Christians under the persecution of Rome. Lord, you say that your kingdom will reign forever. What is happening right now? And we might be even saying the same thing as well today. Well, friends, the answer is in the pages between Exodus 15 and Revelation 15. For in Revelation 15, if you turn back there, if you haven't already, in Revelation 15, we have the answer before us. They sing the song of Moses, just as the Israelites in Exodus 15 did. He's the servant of God. But then it says the end of verse 3 there, or middle of verse 3, and they sing the song of the Lamb. You see, friends, redemption was accomplished not in Moses, but in the better than Moses. The better mediator between God and his covenant people. The better bondservant of the Father God. The better lawgiver that gave his law on the Sermon on the Mount. And the enactor of a new and better covenant that God will accomplish the fullnesses of all his promises. It is through the work of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, that he brings the new and better exodus. And his exodus is new and better. It is perfect because unlike the first exodus, there is no chance the people of God will fall back into idolatry. There is no need to maintain the law by their own hardened hearts and unholy inability. 
Instead, God's salvation has been accomplished by his own power, and so it cannot be undone or taken away. Instead, God's Spirit has been poured out into the hearts of his people, sealing them in his love, giving them preservation in the faith. And this calls us to Christ and empowers us in our fight against sin. And so now, having come to, through the crucible of suffering and even earthly death, the people of God stand in Revelation 15 on this far eternal shore, and they sing a song that gives glory for the entirety of God's perfect plan that is played out in redemptive history. They sing the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. You see, judgment was announced in Revelation 14, 6 through 13. It occurred in verses 14 through 20. And now the redeemed who have been saved through the judgment of the wicked respond by singing. Take a look there in Revelation 15, second part of verse 3. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The redeemed of God fulfill this call to worship, and they mimic Israel after the Exodus as they sing these verses. But here we have the acknowledgement that this is the final Exodus, the ultimate Exodus, from which God's people can know true peace and never need fear any enemy again. This Exodus is only found in Jesus Christ and the amazing deeds accomplished at the cross. What a beautiful reminder of what God accomplished in the gospel of Jesus. And we will emphasize this truth as we enter into communion here in a moment, but before we do, Let's do some simple application with this scene and then we'll finish up. Friends, have you noticed the amount of singing in Revelation? Has anybody noticed that? Yes. Have you noticed that the natural response of a heart that has affection toward the God who saved it is to cry out passionately in song? Not a song of selfish narcissism that focuses on ourselves and the love God has given us as if it's a prom song to Jesus. And not a song that is simply sung out of rote tradition, but hymns that declare the glory of God and his glorious gospel. Amen. Friends, is this the song of your heart? Is this the song of the heart of this church? Friends, if somebody came in here who didn't know Jesus, would this be the song that they saw given in your action of worship? A song that declares the greatness of God and the miracle of his work through Jesus Christ. A song that proclaims him as God the Almighty, the highest authority of the cosmos. A song that declares his wisdom, justice, and truth, even when we don't understand his providence and sovereignty in our circumstances. A song that declares his victory over the enemy that enslaves the people of the world. And a song that proclaims his saving acts, which have brought us into a covenant people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Is this the song that we represent in this church and in our own hearts? If not, what a wonderful thing that we can pray today. Lord, teach my heart to sing this song. And praise God that he has given us a way to practice this for that very day in eternity future. Every Sunday we sing together as a congregation, not just because it is what Christians do, but because we know and understand that we will one day stand as these men and women in Revelation 15. We will one day stand on the shores of the glassy sea in victory over our enemies of sin, death, and hell. And every Sunday, we need to be reminded that the only difference between us and those that were destroyed at the bottom of that watery grave of eternal damnation is the mercy and grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. John pairs together these images of God's conclusive judgment of the nations and the new and better exodus so that we can rejoice in the mercy that God has given us through the cross. And so what choice do we have other than to sing the song of the Lamb and declare the glorious triumph of God and the ultimate exodus of his redeemed? And we should do this, friends, at every chance that we get. And so let's practice this now as we prepare our hearts and remind ourselves of the gospel that gives us the ability to sing this praise to God so that we might practice in anticipation of that day. Let's pray.
Father God, you are glorious in judgment. You are glorious in that you have judged our own sin as violence against you in rebellion. And so, Lord, as we now prepare our hearts to step into communion as a church, Father, help us to see sin, sin in our own lives and sin outside of ourselves, sin that's been done to us. Help us to see it as you see it and help us to have hearts that are broken by it so that we can then turn and do as we've seen today. We can turn and respond in worship and praise to you that comes not from our own ability to sing or talent to sing or our own vocal cords, but from your Holy Spirit in the depths of our gut and our heart that cries out in glory to you for what you've done. Help us, Lord, to have hearts that are turned towards you in the midst of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.